Hello and welcome to World Screen's Fast Festival. I'm Anna Karugati, editor at large at World Screen. Today I have the pleasure of leading a conversation with executives from companies that have sizable content libraries, and we're going to talk about the opportunities they see in the fast market. Joining me are Sean Keeble from Banerjee Writes, Gary Wolf from All Three Media International. Graham Haig from ITV Studios, and Mike Gould from Cineflix Rights. Thank you all for joining me today. So your companies all have vast libraries of programming. What made you consider launching fast channels? You know, I think from a Banerjee Rights perspective, we've been in the fast space now some years. We started in 2019, and to set the landscape, we've got 22 individual fast channels now live across the globe. And we syndicated these into 123 um, streams. So to touch upon the size and the opportunity, absolutely, we're looking at launching channels either dedicated to single IP or, or genre-specific channels, which we can get into further. Um, but the reason being is absolutely to look at incremental revenue streams um, that may have been already driven through the, the formats or the shows. So typically, our approach is to look at our back catalogue, um, the catalog now is spanning at 172,000 hours of content. Um, so we're certainly looking at all of those key rich IPs, um, which may have already had market awareness or market presence in a first or second window run, and then looking at a third or fourth window run in the fast space, of course, for commercial benefits, but also help drive new viewership across the format um, and also a chance to collect data that is driven, obviously, from the channels themselves. So, I mean, you say why fast? I think any distributor of any scale needs to be in this space to some extent. There's been so much growth and it's such a significant revenue opportunity. From a Cineflix rights perspective, quite the opposite of what Sean's saying. I mean, we've only been in this space for nine months. I joined in October of last year. And around this time last year, where we were evaluating to what extent we were going to get into fast, I think we were looking at a library um, you know, five and a half thousand hours, much less than the other panelists here, but, you know, still a chunky, strong catalogue. We were looking at a library, seeing some of these big unscripted brands that we had made global, such as Mayday and Property Brothers. Also looking at other genres that we've really specialised over in the years, uh, such as true crime and property and renovation. And we thought, you know, we're sitting on a treasure trove here. And it was really a space that we just thought, you know, we were perfectly placed to jump in. So that's the decision uh, as to how we got into it when we did. Yeah, like I think from an ITV studio's point of view, it's, it's sort of similar but different. Um, we're probably somewhere in between Cineflix and, and Banerjee in terms of our journey. Um, so we've got a number of channels and feeds live across a multitude of different countries. But really, we're looking at it as a you know, very much a win-win opportunity, you know, driving value in the long tail. Um, and really, you know, we're custodians of 90,000 hours of content you know, across some fantastic brands such as River Monsters, uh, Year on Planet Earth, House Kitchen, you know, into the drum world. We've got things like Vera, uh, Nolly. We've got, you know, um, Vigil, uh, Line of Duty. You know, the list sort of goes on there. And then you've got the big entertainment formats like The Voice, World, you know, Love Island, Celebrity, etc. So, you know, across those three different types of content, we've got lots of single brands to lean on. But also we want to start to think about how do we, you know, curate them into some genre genre channels, um, and then on the you know on the other sort of um, more business points, definitely data. Uh, you know, the, the opportunity for data to be coming into our business to use more broadly, 
Uh, there's the opportunity for us to build brands, you know, not just content brands beyond their existing uh, TV presence into different mediums and to attract, you know, different audiences and, and sort of super fans there. Uh, and, you know, to, to start to play a role, in, you know, and to, and to own our own inventory. You know, we, we're the biggest UK, you know, commercial broadcaster. How can we utilise that strength, you know, within this world uh, and use that to drive a really strong and incremental revenue stream? From an all three point of view, the, the sort of incremental revenue stream is, is exactly the story here so you know we we also got involved in space in late 2019 um starting the genre specific um channel in north america called so real because we have so much lifestyle and reality content in the library um we now have seven channels uh with two new channels launching later this year and they are a mix um to your point graham of, of, of single ip and then sort of multi-genre um, content. Um, so, you know, we've got channels for brands like Midsummer Murders in North America, um, shows like Homes Under the Hammer, which is a big daytime show here in the UK, um, you know, which people can then watch at their leisure uh, in the evenings. But for us, it's it's really about adding extra windows to the cycle that we, that we have with our content, um, adding value for distributors and sort of bringing new opportunities while also trying to make those channels, you know, something of a fan experience, if you like. So I imagine each case is different. It depends on the show, but um, what elements are needed to launch a successful channel? And you you can choose whether it's single IP, genre IP, general entertainment channels. Um, it sort of depends on what shows you want to put out there, correct? I think it's quite simple, really. It's, you know, what what will engage, engage an audience ultimately um, is the priority um and you know and then also how what fits and works within our broader distribution strategy so that can be both single ip you know it can be a river monsters for example um and how that engages with an audience we've just launched a channel in germany in local language so you know that market specifically is very important to to have dubbed content in, in the local language so really and the, the brand is you know very well known and, and strong in the space because it's it's closed ended and fishing has a huge, <laughs> huge captive audience. So, you know, it's almost perfect um, versus, a, you know, something like an ITV choice that we've got live in Australia is mixed IP. Uh, the brand probably is less well known, but the content that sits underneath it, you know, including a River Monsters or Hell's Kitchen or Nanny 911 or um, Paul O'Grady's Love of Dogs and those types of general entertainment shows are, are known well in that in that market. So that you know provides a sort of audience engagement. So for us, it's it's quite simple. You know, it's about it's really about the audience. And you know, if we, if people are watching, then we're happy because that creates impressions and that creates revenue. But it, at the same time, we want it to fit. You know, within our sort of broader distribution uh, strategy. I think we're all going to probably have views now on. What is uh, going to be a success for the past year? Is it going to be single IP driven? Is it going to be genre driven? Is it going to be brand driven? You know, we've got 60% of our fast channels now focusing on those single IP formats. And we're really seeing the success through the non-scripted game shows. That could be Deal or No Deal, Fear Factor, Survivor, The Biggest Loser. But we've also then dipped our toe into a direct-to-consumer um, proposition here where 40% of our fast channels are um, genre-based. It's really gonna come down to elements of 
content volume, it's going to come down to recognize recon recognition of, of the content itself. And as Graham did mention, the local requirements. But I think from our point of view, of course, most of the success currently is being driven by that single IP-led um, approach due to, as you said, Anna, the fast space being leaned back, audiences looking for content which is um, recognizable and also has volume, um, but also gives us that, that opportunity um, to think about building brands or building awareness um, for those, um, again, those brands that may not have linear presence. So I think that's what I was going to add to uh, to this point. Yeah, from a single IP point of view, totally agree with Graham and Sean that the, you know these need to be recognisable brands. Um, you know when you're scrolling through that EPG that does get longer, you know you want brands that that stand out. But what we've sort of found through experimentation is that Fast is still you know a relatively casual view. So if you launch a single IP channel that has quite a strong linear story arc, that's really quite difficult in this space. That you know you could tune in on, on Monday night at six o'clock and you come back on Wednesday and the story's moved along and you've got no idea what's happened in, in that gap you know so it's there's that sort of mix between it being a lean, a lean back sort of bingeable experience and an experience that you can dip into at any point without really having to know too much background and i guess that's why game shows work you know really well yeah it's why something like midsummer works really well for us because they're standalone um movies if you like tv movies um and then you know as you get into that um more sort of genre-based approach it, it is really then making sure that the shows that you have on that really do pop on the EPG because otherwise your challenge is that you're really launching a brand new, you know, a complete new brand uh, and you've got to embrace viewers. You've got to have the right content on the EPG. So when people are going scrolling through, they're not necessarily looking for, you know, in my case, so real, but they might be looking for Gordon Ramsay's Hotel Health. Yeah, and, and from my perspective, I mean, we see single IP and genre brands as equally important, but in two very different ways. So we have four channel brands at the moment. We have three genre brands. One is the Real Disaster Channel, which is a lot of disaster, emergency, SOS, factual content, and then Crime and Justice and Property and Renos, whose, whose genres are probably a bit more self-explanatory. And our single IP channel is American Pickers, which we've just recently launched with our great partners in Pluto, Canada. And yeah, they, they serve a purpose in two different ways. So the single IP channel really gives that immediate binge experience for the super fan. It's really reliable engagement. And there's a reason that they rank so highly on the list of, you know, top performing fast channels. But in defense of the genre brand, where we see the advantage of those is probably in their sort of long-term value. Because you're not constrained within the editorial parameters of a single IP channel, you can draw in programming from much more areas and you can even look to acquire directly into it. So when we're trying to think about ourselves as you know becoming our own broadcaster um you know trying to think of it with that mentality a genre brand genre brand gives you a lot more opportunity to to draw in programming for it so they both complement each other in, in different ways yeah i think i agree with that as well i think we're looking it's almost like a your single ip is your immediate short-term sort of fix you know yeah for, in terms of you're gonna there's an immediate route to market an immediate revenue stream uh, and there are examples of where genre channels, you know, probably more known channel brands in the traditional world that will, you know, particularly in the new space that work well in the fast world. Uh, but for us, we've got a suite of genre channels that we're about to take to market over the subsequent, you know, few months and into 24, where we, we are looking them at as very much the long-term vehicle for 
mm-hmm. you know, a, a future distribution of some of our IP across scripted and non. You know, at the moment it's it's really in the library space, but you know, who knows how this market evolves in three, four, five years time? And and it's an opportunity now for us to get there and build these these channels so that we have you know an option as to where we put our content in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to go on, on the, I agree with Gary also on the the serialized piece is is very I would say true in Maine. We we have one slight exception. We've launched an that's right, the Village Francais channel, which is a very well known French uh, drama series, single IP in in France, uh, and that is quite serialized and actually has performed very well. Um, so uh, you know, it, I guess. In the single IP form, I think it's easier because it's you know it's all that same show, so it's easier for people to pick up. But uh, it might be an exception to the rule, probably in, in that space. I think the thing with with serialization uh, and the conclusion we came to, and maybe maybe what you've done here, Graham, sort of illustrates that. Is if you have a brand and you have an audience that's really familiar with that show, then actually it doesn't matter so much because you're you're diving into that show because you've enjoyed that show. There's a sort of you know renaissance of that show, a sort of remembering that show. It's more, I guess, for us if we're trying to break a brand that's not known to the audience uh, that has a linear arc. Yeah, no, no, agreed, agreed, yeah. And how often do you, um, again, I imagine it depends on the on the programming, how often do these channels need to be refreshed? I think it massively depends. Again, it's the, the single IP genre brand point, but particularly on our genre brand, you know, when we schedule it, we don't want any two consecutive days to be the same, no two consecutive weeks to be the same, no two consecutive eight-hour periods to be the same. And we certainly want each time a viewer visits the channel, even if it's the same format that they're expecting to see at that time of day, we want them to be seeing, you know, a different episode of that format. In terms of sort of new content into the channel, we tend to work to about a 25 refresh rate on a channel per month. That doesn't mean 25 net new content to that channel forever, because I don't think any of us could sustain that, but it at least means on a month-to-month basis, the the general spread of content feels different. Now, that is obviously different for a single IP channel, and I think there's a lot more acceptance from the user and the platforms for those to feel a bit more repetitive for the reasons we've discussed, but refresh is certainly important um, on the multi-brand channels, yeah. It's also maybe reflect programming and marketing and how you know the addition of refresh content then can drive decision making in marketing support or working with the platforms to drive you know incremental reach to your channel but i think also it's quite key to say that when we look at our programming schedules how we then utilize any data given back um, from the platforms whether that be viewership data whether, whether that be average view duration data it's really almost taking the overnights and reflecting that then against our programming decision-making, particularly, as Mike said, you know, against the genre-specific channels. And it's certainly something that we take back when we're looking at horizons as we really treat that channel as a, as, as a linear playout with a, a wide mix of um, catalogue. So we're really focusing on those day parts when we're, when we're scheduling. The data is a good point, Sean, I think, and it's a bit of a... You know, we're not we're not receiving the data that we probably all want from from platforms, and it's very varied. And you know, we're having to use sort of third parties to bring that all together and aggregate it, and then be able to sort of make sense of it. Um, and obviously, we hope that will evolve. You know, we're working with the platform partners and the industry and together, you know, in, in general, um, so that we're able to you know start to look at audience 
data alongside your just your sort of channel streams and program streams. Um, I think on the scheduling side, yeah, it does differ. Like, you know, we've got Take a Come Dine With Me. You know, that's that show was filmed in a specific format. It's five episodes that air nightly, stripped over a week. So you've sort of, you've got to schedule it in line with how it was originally envisaged as a format um, to, you know, engage that viewer um, so that they can watch, you know, five back to back and get get that sort of um, satisfaction at the end when they find out who, who wins. Um, so that's, you know, a, a sort of fairly straightforward approach, but then to, to sort of, to Sean's point, you know, on the mixed IP, it really is, you know, mirroring to an extent what linear channels look like now. Um, but we aren't able to sort of be as quite as sophisticated because of the data and the more data that we get, the more sophisticated that can be. And then you, then you start to go into the world of marketing and, and that then, you know, it, it sort of enables probably more premium content to go on these platforms because you've got the ability to understand how that performs and drives audience and therefore, you know, impressions and advertising revenue. You know, very, very similar in terms of, you know, refresh rate is, you know, typically around 25% a month, but it is really about what you do with those hours. Um, and the whole marketing thing, you know, we have our audience growth person sitting with our scheduler. So we're understanding the marketing calendars of the platforms that we're on, and most of them will give you their marketing um, calendars. So a great example, you know, we've got a channel for the brand Great British Menu. Um, and some of the platforms are certainly here in the UK planning a summer of sport. And so your immediate thinking would be, well, well why Great British Menu? But when you actually understand your content, and I think that's the thing that as distributors we bring to this, um, you know, we know that we've got a season of Great British Menu where the chefs were competing to um, cook for a um, banquet for Wimbledon. So suddenly that's incredibly relevant to a summer of sport. So we're looking at the marketing agendas of each of our client platforms, as well as that audience data. I agree with Graham, I agree with Sean of, of all of that coming back. Uh, and it's just sort of trying to meld that mix together, I guess. And what considerations go into choosing the right platform for your IP or for your channel? You know, we, we've certainly looked at non-exclusive agreements across a lot of the fast landscape and we evaluate, of course, each platform one by one. But for us, it's really understanding the size of the existing audience base, you know, mm -hmm. the, the amount of hardware available from that platform in terms of connected TVs or, or set-top boxes. You know, I think we then, as distributors, got to have those conversations around discoverability. You know, what, where will our channel end up, you know, in terms of EPG placement? What can we do collaboratively in, in that area? And also from an, a user perspective, does the platform have that EPG? You know, what is the user interface looking like on these platforms to then hone in on, on, our, on our offering? So I think we take a lot of um, decisions into, into the mix when we go ahead and, and, and decide. But of course, from our perspective, when we're looking at the platforms, it's first of all looking at the size and the opportunity. Um, it's also also then reviewing the amount of channels already on the platform. You know, and if if that's the case, what is there maybe a lack of in terms of genre? What is there a, a desire of in terms of content? And for us to take that view too. And then from a commercial standpoint, of course, as distributors, we're then going to want to look at what opportunity is there to to work together on. Is that across? as Graham mentioned, advertising representation. So that could be inventory splits or that could be even backfill opportunities. So I think we're all taking a commercial view, but also 
it's got to be the size of the opportunity. I would just quickly second that from a collaboration perspective. Um, Our best platforms are the ones who are staffed to work with us to make the most out of these channels. And we certainly really value those platforms where we can work with them uh, to promote the channels, learn about, to Gary's point, their editorial um, calendars and take advantage of that. So having that willingness on the platform side is really key with who we're going to devote, you know, a lot of our attention to as a partnership. Uh, But yeah, to follow up on Sean's point, yeah, scale is everything strong monetization behind the platforms really helps um but we try not to discriminate too much with our distribution distribution is distribution at the end of the day eyeballs are eyeballs and we're all trying to get on as many in front of as many people as possible so yeah but those are some things to consider we've tiered the market and you know i'm not going to go into who's in, in which tier uh, that, that would be fair all right but we, we certainly know that for us to launch a channel, you know, we would ideally have at launch either one tier one partner or maybe two stroke three tier two partners. Those that are in tier three, you wouldn't launch a channel around that. Um, in fact, you know, that, that's quite a quick way of losing money. Um, so as much as people talk about how much money there is in fast, you've got to be really smart about how you launch, who your launch partners are, and then who you can add on after you've got the ball rolling with that. I won't guess who's in your tears, Gary, but um, <laughs> uh, I think it, not not too dissimilar. I, we've sort of taken an approach of working with probably some of the bigger and known partners in, in the space. Um, and we're, we're very agnostic as to who we work with. I think it's very much, is there a solid return on investment for the costs and time and effort that's involved to get a, a channel live? Um, and obviously, if that's already live in market, then you can start to look at it more holistically to say, well, actually, you know, we're, we've got a really strong return on investment for this channel. So perhaps additional distribution with probably more up and coming platforms makes sense because we want to be there as they sort of up and come, so to speak. Um, and it, yeah, so it really is, you know, uh, market by market as well, because obviously, the, you know, somewhere like the US is. It's very different to um, most of Europe and, and Australia, where you've got probably fewer players, um, and certainly, you know, the, the the sort of bigger players are the more known global brands um, in this space. I was going to ask about the US. For now, it seems to be the largest market. Do you see that continuing? Um, there's talk of consolidation. Uh, the, there's some question about the strength of the advertising market. How do you view the US right now? I, it, it will continue, I think, to be the strongest market for a, a while yet. I can't see how that changes. You know, they've uh, been in this space for the, the longest. They've got the most platforms, the, the, the sort of biggest brands and the audience, therefore, is most familiar with, you know, the, the sort of idea of a fast channel and watching content in that way. Um, I think they they have... Um, regional advertising there you know there's 50 oh, i'm gonna say this wrong there's many states in the us um and there you know there's therefore an opportunity for you know more regional ad play whereby those those regional advertisers can be specific about who they target you know which is quite unique to to that country um and so i think realistically in the next two three four or even longer it's, it's not I can't see another territory that you get the same opportunity in terms of actual numbers. Consolidation, I think we're seeing already, you know, if you, I was speaking to one platform last week and I think they were saying that they, they launched one channel in the last month and, and sort of uh, sunset 20. So 
that's probably not going to be uncommon as we move forward as a lot of these platforms have got you know sort of three four hundred channels on so it then comes back to us to make sure that we've got something that's really unique and really sort of strong in terms of a genre or a, or a single ip brand and that can really sort of add to a platform's um channel lineup and it's not sort of duplicating things that they've, they've already got there. I mean, it's also quite a unique ecosystem in the US. So, I mean, yes, there's obviously the volume there, it's, as you're saying, Graham, with the numbers. But, you know, if, if when you come to, say, the, the UK, you can plug in any TV and have, you know, 70 channels coming through the antenna. In the, in the US, if you cut the cord, well, then you are dependent on, on fast viewing. Um, or VOD, or, you know, there is a limited antenna market. But, you know, it, it, it's a very different dynamic. And I think that also impacts how we program channels as well and, you know, what you think the role of FAST is as it comes into Europe as opposed to what the role of FAST is maybe in, in the US. Um, but for that reason, you know, as, as Graham says, the, the US is going to be, you know, the big market for, for some time now. It's always going to be number one. I think the extent of its market share will probably drop over the coming years as some of the other sort of big English-speaking uh, markets come into the frame. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very local space fast and i think in a lot of other regions uh to gary's point broadcasters have such a strong hold on on users access to content in a way that it was not quite the case in the us when it was so ripe for disruption so it's going to be really really interesting to see yeah who else emerges but agree us is, is going to be strong for a while and if i maybe add a, a closing point i think also awareness of fast channels is probably quite prevalent in the us and perhaps c- compared to here in europe or, or in those emerging markets. So I think there really does need to be an awareness piece um, to help expedite uh, viewer awareness and also the ad market awareness, of course, because you know we fully respect that the advertising market, as, as Graham mentioned, is very mature in the US and media buyers and you know brands have certainly bought into the idea of buying campaigns again to connect to TV fast spaces. So it's up to, you know, the platforms almost to think about an awareness marketing campaign to drive fast consumption further here in Europe, because of course, then we're going to see some some differentiation in that revenue, which I believe is 90% of the average certainly coming from the US and of course, then 10% coming outside. So for us, of course, as a distributor and collectively in the room, we're all going to take a look at what is the biggest opportunity. I think we all say that the US will remain that, um, which then obviously in terms of return on investment means for distributors like ourselves, we look at tailoring our offer. You know, Does this mean more premium product enters US before rest of the world? It could be that case. So you know, I think, again, taking that perspective into commercial, you know, we have to factor in that the US will, yes, remain significant. You raise a really interesting point there, Sean, because as, as distributors, you know, we're all looking at this um, in terms of the, you know, the whole cycle of rights and, and where the value sits. Um, and so the value in fast, you know, at the moment is going to be lower in, in Europe than it is in, in the States. You know, our, our job at the end of the day is to deliver as much value we can back to the producers. Uh, so that largely determines how much goes on to fast. You know, in the US, therefore, you've got probably different ways to do it as well. You know, you can do it through our, your own channels, you know, um, and you, or you can do it by, you know, as that market has grown, um, there are opportunities now potentially to license, you know, fast window content to fast channels or fast platforms in that space. Um, 
So it's not, you know, you know, for us, like Gary says, you know, as distributors of the content, we represent that content. We're lucky to do that. And we've got some amazing brands between us all. Um, um, but ultimately, it's about trying to find the right home um, and, and the right place. And that is both in our own channels that we run and operate. Um, but equally, it could be, you know, through licensing that content to fast platforms or channels. Outside the U.S., in which territories are you seeing the beginning of growth in the fast market? We're live in Canada, UK, France, Germany, Australia, New Zealand and Brazil. I think touching upon, and again, I think we're all going to say this as well, we've seen good growth in Europe, um, particularly the UK and Germany. Um, we recently launched in Australia, and I do think going back to Mike's point around the BeBot platforms, I think, you know, when we look at a market like Australia, BVOD platforms are very much accommodating fast ecosystem and fast platforms and fast channels alike are certainly entering those BVOD um, services. So that is already giving a, a quite a large market awareness. So obviously this is quite a key time then to start thinking about our additional um, launches, perhaps in, in Australia, for example. Um, but then we look at the other platforms and the other territories you know, viewing consumption in Latin America is is incredibly strong, um, particularly across Brazil and Mexico. And then it goes back to that point around the advertising um, market need to, of course, need to mature in order then to reflect upon um, um, greater revenue gain. Um, we've certainly recognised that Central Eastern Europe is a as a region will will grow in 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 a few years. But going back to Graham's initial initial point. We have to be mindful about localization and we have to be mindful around content, localization and cost. So as, as distributors, we are going to be wearing those costs for the time being. So we need to really make sure, again, internal investment is, is, is paramount in any decision making. In terms of Asia, we've seen um, you know significant opportunity in, in the space, but just needs to be mindful of whilst viewership may be high, um, of course, advertising and the CPMs reflected may need to, of course, increase um, in the region too. We're probably all going to say fairly similar things. You know, we've got channels live in the UK, France, uh, Spain, Nordics, Netherlands, Australia, the US. Um, and of of those, I think where where the material, if we put the US to one side, where the material growth lies in terms of actual numbers is, is likely UK and Germany. Uh, we've got something live in Latin America recently. Um, and yeah, you know, scale in terms of eyeballs is you know potentially huge but cpm levels and sort of monetization is is tricky and and there probably more than i say more than that but you know the local piece is very important local formats and local content works exceptionally well and that's where you're going to get enough eyeballs to monetize to a you know a level that makes sense you know uh you know or you've got a very very strong piece of ip that that's dubbed and known in the market but um you know it, it's really going to be those to two types of content i think will work there um and yeah asia we've had a few conversations definitely in the likes of singapore and south korea and there again south korea home to two of the bigger brands in this space obviously in lg and samsung and we want to think about ways to work there but it, it's you know becomes tricky when you've got to think about subtitling or dubbing you know, and then what is realistically the size of the audience? What's the ad market look like? And and so, you know, these are all things that I'm sure we're all being challenged on by our sort of management teams. And we need to make sure that we're able to present really strong business cases to move into this space and, and into new markets. And, and so that's why I think 
short term, our focus is going to be on the sort of big material sort of markets such as UK and Germany and probably the rest of Europe alongside alongside Canada, you know, in the US. I'd agree. I mean, to be fair, we don't do that much in um, foreign language. We tend to license out more there. Um, but, you know, it, it is that that classic thing um, that I guess, unless you're running a, a, a fast channel yourself, you don't quite appreciate, which is that high viewing and low ad revenue is disastrous because you're paying for the bandwidth. Um, so you can have as many viewers as you want, but if the money's not there, your channel's running at a loss. So we do a lot of business cases around that. You know, there's a lot of countries we, we could be doing something in, but the time's not quite right yet. Um, and equally, you know, the way that, that doves are licensed, if, if it's not a production that you own, you know, you've either got to acquire them back from the uh, local broadcaster or you're creating new doves. So it's another layer of cost. So, you know, I, I think certainly the English speaking markets are, you know, where, where the money absolutely is at the moment. Um, you know, US, Canada seems to be coming up pretty fast, actually. Um, the UK's at a decent level now. Uh, and then, you know, Australia and New Zealand, interesting, we just launched our first channel there um, in the past few weeks for our four in the bed brand so we're looking forward to seeing the returns there and, and we continue to dig away at the um at, you know the european foreign language markets uh, but it's making those cases stack up all right well thank you so much for your time this has been a very interesting deep dive into a type of viewing that i sure only has growth ahead i imagine you all agree it's uh it's something that we should all be watching because it's going to grow and thank you for providing so many hours of great lean back experience. <laughs> I really appreciate it. But mostly, thank you for your time. Be well. And I hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.